You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI. And, you know, I think service to others and to our community can be one of the most important jobs any of us can do. And serving your country as an elected official as one of the 535 elected members of the U.S. Congress is a job that requires a lot of grit, perseverance, honor and a willingness to to cooperate for the betterment of the United States. Today I'm so honored to to welcome former US Congressman John Duncan Jr, affectionately known as Jimmy Duncan, and uh he served our great state in East Tennessee and Washington for 30 years before retiring in 2019. Uh during his 3 decades in office, he worked tirelessly to make sure that his constituents were represented fairly. Uh, he sat on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. He was the primary responsor, sponsor of 10 bills that were enacted during his tenure. And his book, From Bat Boy to Congressman, outlines all the many, uh, a lot of the many experiences he's had in his life. Good, good. Hello, Congressman. Welcome back to More Living. Well, Jim, thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here with you. Uh, I've had the privilege to be on your program a couple of times before, but it's been uh, it's, several, several years. Yeah, it's and, been since uh, retirement, really. Right. And uh, but I, I've always not only have I been on this program, I've listened to you many times, and I I think I know that uh, you and I you and I think a lot alike on uh, some of these uh, major issues. Yes, sir. Um, talk to us about how's how you enjoy retirement. I've, it's been great for me. Uh, I've been very fortunate. Um, uh, I got uh, remarried about uh, 20 months ago, 21 months ago, to a wonderful woman. I, I had lost my first wife to uh, uh, cancer and uh, two strokes, and and then, uh, but I went to a church supper seven months after she passed away, and I sat by a young woman who. Um, uh, I knew it as a child at Park City Presbyterian Church, and and um, three and a half months later, we were married. She lost her first husband to Lou Gehrig's disease, and so both of us had been through uh, tough times a few months before. And and um, the minister who married us though said it was the first time he'd married a, a couple that had ninety seven years of marriage between them, and we have uh, between us seventeen grandchildren, seven grown children, spouses. Uh, it it adds up to thirty one all here in Knoxville, and so uh, uh, I th- what a blessing they're all here. That well, just wow. I'm going to two uh, little boys basketball games um, um, today, and and um, just uh, and I'm staying still trying to stay uh, politically active, and I write a weekly column for the Focus newspaper, and uh, 
Um, so it's been, uh, it's been great. Uh, uh, everything except my golf game. I think it's gotten a little bit worse, but, uh, even though you're playing more, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what one, one of my son said, dad, is your uh, golf game that you're playing a little more, uh, uh, gotten any better. And I said, not one bit. Uh, I used to, I, I stayed awfully busy. So I, you know, I'd only play seven or eight, 10 times a year, maybe. And, I told my first wife in the mid nineties, I said, gosh, the president of the United States is playing more golf than me. And I'm not one, one thousand as important as he is. Bill Clinton was in there and I used to see him playing golf. So I, I did start trying to play a little more in the mid nineties, but, um, it's a tough game, but I enjoy it. And I, and I get a little exercise that way. Well, your, uh, you know, your father was mayor in Knoxville, went on to represent our area in Congress. Uh, politics has really been a family affair for your family. Right. Your sister, Becky Duncan Massey, is a Tennessee state senator. Right. You, of course, started serving in 1988 and was, did, did you know that politics, I mean, you started out, you were a bat boy for the Knoxville Smokies. Right. You became a teacher. Then you were a lawyer, a judge. Then you became congressman. Did you always know you wanted to kind of succeed your dad into politics? No, not not really. I mean, I remember as a little boy, I I would walk around sometimes in my dad's big shoes and and uh, carry his briefcase, and I used to say I wanted to be a lawyer. But I was uh, I was uh, very bashful as a young boy, and and uh, I don't know. I uh, but but uh, but slowly the politics I, I think gets in your blood, and I, and. Um, and I really worshiped my dad. Da- uh, Daddy, uh, my, my grandparents in Scott County had 10 kids in an outhouse and not much more, a subsistence farm. Daddy hitchhiked into Knoxville with $5 in his pocket to go to UT and worked his way through. And, uh, and, uh, I was just so proud of my dad. I, I told the new Sentinel a few years ago, they had an article about both of us. And I said, my dad was the kindest, sweetest, toughest, hardest working man I ever knew. And I meant tough in a good way. He always pushed us to work harder, do more. And so, uh, and that was uh, good. You don't, I guess you don't really like being pushed, but it's, it's, you're very lucky if you have somebody who loves you enough to really push you to work harder and do more. Absolutely. Um, so you were a bat boy, you know, lawyer, judge, congressman. A lot of those are public service, right? I mean, right. certainly the the teacher part, and even right. even deciding to become a judge. So you've spent most of your career in really as a public servant. So why is that so important to you? Well, I've tried to uh, uh, serve the people, and I've uh, I tried to vo- I tried to work. Uh, uh, very hard at every job I ever had. And, uh, because I did, I've, I, I, I was so lucky. I've, I loved every job I ever had. I, uh, I was a bag boy. I was a groundskeeper at a baseball park when I was in high school for a dollar an hour. And, uh, and then I became a bag boy at the A&P grocery store for a dollar 10 an hour. I thought A&P was such a good company. I thought about making my career with A&P and then then I, when I turned 18, I got old enough to be a, a salesman at Sears, the old Sears on Central, and I did that my first two years at UT, and I thought Sears was such a fine company that uh, uh, I, I thought about making my career with them. And, and um, then I, I was majoring in journalism at a time when almost nobody majored in journalism. Uh, 
uh, and um, uh, I got a full. T- I worked full time uh, my senior year at UT as a reporter at the Knoxville Journal, and I thought that was a cool job. And thought about making my career as a reporter, but I'd always planned to go to law school, and uh, so I uh, I've been to school all my life in Knoxville, but. Uh, uh, I wanted to go to law school in Washington if I could, and and um, since I had a free place to stay up there, uh, I got admitted to George Washington Law School and was going to go full-time. But then Becky and my sister saw that they had a teacher shortage in Alexandria despite being the highest-paid system in the state, and one of the things they needed was a journalism teacher. I went over and applied and I got a job teaching American government and journalism at the biggest high school in one of the biggest high schools in Virginia and went to law school five nights a week, three hours on Saturday. At the end of that first year, I told my dad I was going to, that I loved the teaching so much that I was going to give it up and just teach full time. And that conversation lasted about 10 seconds. (laughs) And, uh, and that was, best because of what I did, I reluctantly gave up the teaching job so I could go to law school full-time and finish up faster, and I did sure. that. And then I got uh, came back here. I knew, always knew I was going to come back here to practice, and I practiced law with Zane Daniel, and I was so lucky. I, uh, w- we had a – it was a story every day. There were so many for lawyers back then, and we had more business than we even could handle. It was just the two of us, Daniel and Duncan, and um, had a fascinating law practice, fascinating judgeship, tried the attempted murder of James Earl Ray. My court was the only court he ever testified in. And then I had 30 years in Congress, which it just is amazing that uh, I'm just so grateful uh, to the people of this area. Said, let me do that. We're visiting with uh, former U.S. Congressman Jimmy Duncan. We're going to go to our first break. When we come back, I want to kind of dive into some of Congressman Duncan's experiences. Um, he just mentioned the court case that he presided over, uh, the, the murder trial. So I, I kind of want to get into some of that. And he just got so many unique experiences. And we'll also get his perspective on the state of affairs in Washington now since he has retired. So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. We're visiting with Congressman Jimmy Duncan. He uh, retired in 2019. So great to have him with us. He served our country for 30 years in Congress. And prior to that, he was a trial judge. Prior to that, before he uh, was a lawyer, he had been a teacher. So he really spent most of his life in public service. And he has some tremendous experiences. And he recounts some of those in his book, From Bat Boy to Congressman. And, Congressman, you mentioned there um, right before the break it, you presided over the attempted murder t- trial uh, of James Earl Ray, and um, can you tell us about that case? 
and 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 you know, do you have an anecdote or something? Oh, sure. That uh, you know would would just be yeah. Tell us about that case. Well, they brought uh, uh, James Earl Ray in with uh, almost as much security as uh, if he were the president of the United States, and so uh, uh, before they uh, put him on the stand, uh, uh, they wanted to have a, a recess, and so. Uh, uh, two of the TBI agents and I sat in my office and James Earl Ray sat um, back at the back about, I guess, 20 feet away from us. And uh, uh, while we were talking and we weren't talking to him at that point, and he, all of a sudden he started crying and uh, and uh, just almost for no reason. And uh, I thought, well, maybe his time in prison is, has affected his mind in some way. But uh, I went back out, and it was a very tense situation. The courtroom was packed, uh, and I had gotten uh, in the ratings that the lawyers, that the Bar Association does with judges, I had gotten uh, uh, about the highest ratings you could possibly get. But in that in that case, I made the worst mistake that a judge could ever make. I looked down uh, with James Earl Ray on the stand, and I looked down at the attorney general, and I said in a tough, stern, judicial voice, I said, General Jolly, you want to begin your questioning? And he said, well, fine, Your Honor, but don't you think you should bring the jury back in first? (laughs) I'd gotten so tense, I'd forgotten to bring the jury back in. (laughs) There's not a good way you can recover from a mistake like that. But um, I really enjoyed my time as a judge, and and, uh, I tried to be – I tried to help everybody that I could, but at times you have to be, uh, also you have to be tough. That helps uh, the community. Now, you were always big on representing all your constituents, um, even the ones that disagreed with you. And your voting record, uh, you always made a point that if, if at all possible, you wanted to be present in Washington for votes. But one of your most unpopular votes was a no vote on the Iraq war. Uh, talk, t- tell us about that uh, experience. Were you worried about going against the establishment for fear of retribution or how it would affect your political career? Jim, uh, uh, what uh, happened on that, I had voted for the first Gulf War in 1991 when uh, um, Colin Powell and uh, uh, all the top leaders uh, came and told us how uh, how dangerous Saddam Hussein was with his so-called elite troops and all. But uh, uh, I very quickly uh, uh, saw those same elite troops surrendering to CNN camera crews and empty tanks. And I, I, and I thought then that the threat uh, the first uh, uh, on the first war had been greatly exaggerated. And so when it came time uh, for the second Iraq war, the big, the bigger war, I read everything I could get my hands on, and I read uh, uh, in Fortune magazine that said uh, uh, a prolonged war in the Middle East would make uh, our troops uh, sitting ducks for Islamic terrorists. And uh, a U.S. News World Report had a public had an article that said why the rush to war, and uh, I just decided that we had too many. Uh, chicken hawks who had never fought on a front line in a front line war and most many of whom had never even been in the military who just seemed to be so eager to go to war and so when they found out that i was leaning against voting for this i got called down um, i got called down to the white house and put in a little security room 
really not much bigger than this studio and, and, um, with Condoleezza Rice and, uh, um, John, uh, George Tennant and John McLaughlin, who were the top two people in the CIA. And they started trying to tell me all these things about why we should go to war. And I said, well, I said, um, uh, do you have any evidence of any imminent threat? And, and they didn't. And I said, um, well, in my opinion, it seemed like we were going against every conservative position I ever had known. Uh, it, it was going to require massive foreign aid. It was, uh, Going to war to enforce UN resolutions when the uh, when conservatives have been the biggest critics of the UN, and uh, it, it just didn't seem to be the right thing to do. And so, uh, the night before I did that vote, though, my sister Beverly Beverly told me that a Knoxville TV station had run a poll and said seventy four percent were in favor of the war and nine percent were against and seventeen percent undecided. And so. That was one time when I pushed the button to do my vote that I thought I might be ending my career. And for and for the first year or so, for the first two or three years maybe, that was a very unpopular vote. In fact, uh, about a year after I'd done that, I was supposed to give the lay sermon at a, a church in Lenore City that Sunday, but the minister called me the Monday before very apologetic and said his main contributor, his main deacon would uh, – said he would pull out of the church if I went, if I was there. But slowly, 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 it became, I think, one of the most popular votes I ever did. And and I also spoke many times on the floor and urging that we bring our troops home from Afghanistan long, many years before we did. We stayed in that war too long. But uh, I just decided and felt like that most of these wars we had gotten into were more about money and power, and I saw uh, how much power the military industrial complex had. You know, yeah, the war machine. Yes, and and actually it's fascinating to me, the most anti-war president we ever had in the last hundred years or so was Dwight Eisenhower, who spent his career in the military. Not only did he war in the, against the uh, warn us about the military industrial complex in his farewell speech, his first major speech in 1953 April 18th, uh, to the American Society of Newspaper Editors. It's called the Cross of Iron speech, and if you read that speech, that's probably the most anti-war speech that any president ever gave. So I just decided that you should just never go, never go to war unless there was no other reasonable alternative, and then only as a very last resort. Uh, I'm not a pacifist, but uh, I don't I don't believe in sending people to war unless you're just really forced to. Did you uh, did you agree with Ronald Reagan's peace through strength? Yes, in fact, Reagan is. Uh, I, uh, I should have given Reagan uh, credit for those words I just said because uh, he he gave a speech one time and he set out four uh, uh, reasons that four uh, things that had to, conditions that had to be met. He thought before he, he went to war, and he and he's the one that said uh, that. Uh, you should never go to war unless there's uh, unless there's no other reasonable alternative, and then only if you're forced to. Yeah, you know the state of affairs in Washington is pretty interesting right now. Um, let's talk about fiscal responsibility. You were always big in your career about fiscal responsibility, and of course Tim Burchett, who succeeded you, is also big on fiscal responsibility. Um, 
you think we've gotten too far out in front of our skis here? I mean, our federal debt just continues to balloon and balloon. Um, we ever going to be able to get our arms around this? Well, I can tell you this, everybody would be so much better off, the country and every individual would be far better off if we hadn't run up all this debt. I mean, my goodness, the the debt was slightly less than $3 trillion when I went there, and now it's 30, over $34 trillion. And I think the reason that more people not, don't, that I believe more people would get much more upset about that, but except for the fact that there's no human being that can comprehend a trillion dollars i mean it's it's just unfortunate and the way i look at it if if a if a family uh can only afford a, a say a two hundred thousand dollar house but they go out here and buy a five hundred thousand dollar house far more than they could afford then they they have no money left over to fix the house when it, they need to as all houses need to at times and in the same way we're now we're spending a, a mind-boggling uh, i think it's 870 billion a year just to pay the interest on the debt and uh, it's just it, it makes the whole country more vulnerable uh, to china and other uh, countries and so uh, yeah our interest on the debt now is right around 15 percent of our of our uh, budget, and when it gets up to that level, historically, that's when Wall Street has started to apply pressure that something's got to give and there's got to be some things done. But, you know, when we look at the outlook for this year's election cycle, it appears that both, you know, candidates, Biden on the one side and Trump on the other, who's likely to be the nominee, uh, they both seem to be big spenders, Yes, they, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, uh, uh, I thought President Trump was, uh, uh, was a good president. Uh, um, I mean, President Trump has, uh, said and done things that even his strongest supporters wish that he had not said or done. But overall, I think he was a very good president, except, uh, he did go along with too much spending, particularly on COVID, that I don't believe he should have, uh, uh, put the country or gotten the country into. And so, uh, I think that's unfortunate. But, uh, uh, Eric Metaxas wrote a best selling biography a few years ago of Bonhoeffer, this, uh, uh, German theologian. And there's a, a section in early in that book, about 40 or so pages into it, that he, he tells about the terrible inflation that hit Germany in the 1920s. And, uh, it was just unbelievable, and they were the most educated country in the world at that time. They had a lot of smart people there, and uh, so for some reason, people th- seem to think that this country is immune. Maybe they think the Federal Reserve Board's going to protect us, but actually, we had the worst depression the country's ever had. About just about uh, sixteen years after the Federal uh, Reserve uh, was created, so. Uh, uh, I just think that we're treading on some thin ice, and and uh, I'm hopeful that we elect many more fiscal conservatives to the Congress uh, in the elections later this year. If you look at the last hundred and so years in the United States, when we've had some sort of crisis, whether it's an economic crisis, the Great Depression, certainly the Great Recession in 2007, 08, 09, um, or war, 
there would be a lot of government spending. This goes way back to even the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. But then that would be followed by curbs in spending and higher taxes. We haven't really – we've had two major stresses to the system in the last 25 years. We had – or really 20-some years. We had the Great Recession that hit in 07 and 08, and then um, we had the pandemic, COVID, in 2020. So we've had massive spending – but then nothing's done been done since those times to curb that back the way it has been historically with other spending sprees, right? Right. You're exactly right. And the, and the problem is is that uh, government uh, exaggerates the threat or the need on everything. It's it goes back to the old saying, "Follow the money." I mean, I read years ago that. Uh, some of the agencies that dealt with the homeless problem had uh, uh, they had uh, they had more than doubled the number of homeless in this country, uh, uh, and it was it was uh, not not accurate. And the same thing, no matter what department or agency it is, they uh, exaggerate the threat or the need just so they can get uh, more money, more money, more money. But we need to leave more money with individuals so that they can spend their money on their families in the best way possible. Uh, liberals and people on the left seem to have a, an arrogant uh, opinion and think that they should run everybody's lives and, the, and the, that the average person doesn't have enough uh, sense or intelligence to run his or her own life and that the government should run it for them and that the liberals should run the government. But I just think it's totally wrong uh, uh, Edward Rendell, who was the mayor of Philadelphia, testified in front of a congressional committee many years ago, and he said uh, uh, government does not work because it's not designed to. There's no incentive for people to work hard, so many do not, and there's no incentive to save money, so much of it is squandered. And that's a pretty good summary of what I saw in my years in Washington. We're visiting with former Congressman Jimmy Duncan. When we come back, I want to dive into how he feels about the partisan politics, it seems like there's much, much more division and rancor than there used to be, and get his perspective on that. Stay with us. We'll also hear more. I'd like to ask Congressman Duncan, the one person he's met through his incredible career that he was most nervous about meeting. So we'll, we'll, we'll have more with Congressman Duncan. This is Jim Brogan. You're listening to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. We're on every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. and again from 3 to 4 p.m. here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. You can catch all of our show's podcasts. You can use your favorite. You can use your iTunes, pod, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. You can also catch all of our show's podcast at our website if you go to BroganFinancial.com uh, and click on radio. And today we're visiting with Congressman Jimmy Duncan. Uh, 
and it's just an honor to have him back with us. It's been a while since we visited with with former Congressman Duncan. Uh, he retired in 2019 and uh, seems to be living a very, very active and involved uh, retirement and having a great time. And uh, I just mentioned there before the break, Congressman, you know, you have many good friends that were on the opposite side of the aisle. Right. And the current structure of partisan politics and division that really kind of plague the landscape today, um, are you concerned about where that is? It doesn't seem like, you know, in old days, you'd you'd be good friends with people across the aisle. I don't, at least from what we hear, there doesn't seem, seem to be much of that anymore. Well, in one of my columns uh, just a few weeks ago, I wrote that uh, Republicans and Democrats seemed, it seemed to me, used to get along a lot better than they do now. And, uh, and actually, the Democrats treated me as well as the Republicans did in my time there. And, and I felt that I needed to, to get along with them because the Democrats controlled the House for 16 of my 30 years. And if I wanted to get things done for my constituents and for my district, I had to try to get along with them. So I did. The way I handled it, uh, uh, I never hesitated to express my views in speeches on the floor. But I never attacked or criticized anybody personally. I, I was, I you kept like, it on the topics. I felt I could uh, do it uh, strictly on the issues. And so uh, I, had, uh, I had some real good friends on the uh, Democratic side. I do, I, I do think that the... I, I did, while I got personally along well with almost all the Democrats on, uh, over there, I did notice that almost nobody on the Democratic side had ever run a small or medium-sized business. And I think if they had, they all have been bureaucrats or social workers or professors or whatever. And I always thought that, that you know, the people in this country that I really admire are the people who uh, know what it means to have a good month to start the next month off at zero. And uh, uh, I think if, if more of the Democrats had had experiences like that, I don't think they really appreciated the pressure and the courage sometimes it takes to uh, uh, start a business or make a business survive or go two or three years without taking a salary. And anyway, and like I said, those, the, those entrepreneur people are the people that I really admire the most, and we had a lot more of those. The Republicans were sort of the party of small and medium-sized business. Well, and really our small businesses are the backbone of our entire economy, uh, really. So I think that's very well said. Um, as you reflect on your time in, in Congress, um, what are some of your proudest moments that stand out? Is there a moment or two that you're proudest of with representing Tennessee? Was the Iraq war vote in the 2000s, was that one of them? Well, uh, well, that was one of them, but uh, I did a... a I'm very proud of the voting record that I had, I especially, in fact, if, if everybody had voted the way that I did, we wouldn't have had any debt. We we could have wiped it out. Uh, uh, now, what I did when I when I saw that uh, uh, that a bill was going to be passed, even though I spoke out uh, uh, against these things and spending way too much, I did go ahead to try to get things from my district because I didn't want all the money to go to New York or California. And so we were, we got a lot of things done here for the, for the airport. And we got more highway money than almost any other district in the country. And, and uh, at times when I was chairing certain uh, subcommittees and so forth, 
So I tried to uh, tried to help out as much as I could. But I think the thing that I was most proud of was just helping individual people on the problems that would sound little if if um, uh, I told them to you, but uh, uh, they were important to the people who came to me. So my constituent service, uh, I I tried to emphasize that more than anything. And then I was proud of you know I got in two different appropriations bills. Uh, Two million one year, one million another year, three million for the neonatal clinic at UT. I can name you several hundred things like that that I'm very pleased about. As I drive around the district, I see things that um, I was able to do, and that's great. That's great hearing those those stories. Um, you've been around a lot of interesting people. You've been around people of power, certainly mayors, governors, even senators and presidents, ambassadors, and international figures. You've been around actors and actresses and singers and all kinds of interesting people. Was there one person that you were most nervous about meeting? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny in a way to uh, think about that. Uh, uh, all the presidents uh, that I served under uh, were very nice to me. And in fact, is while just, uh, just on the tail end, uh, I didn't really serve that long under him. Uh, very, uh, just the last couple of months of his uh, time in office was President Reagan, and he did a he actually taped a, a TV and radio endorsement for me the first time I ran. But all the presidents, both the Democrats and the Republicans, were both very nice to me. The, I think the most nervous I ever got. I never was much of a TV person, and very early in my time in Washington. Sam Donaldson, who was a big TV celebrity at that time, he came to interview me. And, and, uh, 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 I remember, I think I got so nervous and short of breath the next time he came to interview me. I, he was so nice. I think he felt sorry for me the first time, but, uh, and then I got uh, really nervous and short of breath one time when, uh, Pat Buchanan, who I always really admired, Pat Buchanan and his sister and Ross Perot came to see me, all three of them at the same time. And, uh, um, so, uh, they were, that was about a thing called NAFTA back uh, years ago. And I don't know, some of those, uh, TV celebrities, I think made me a little more uncomfortable, but, uh, I guess I, uh, was there a person you met, um, that, that we all would know who they are that, um, was just a lot more interesting than you expected? Well, I, uh, um, I will tell you, oh, I've got stories about a lot of these celebrities in my book, but uh, yeah. one, one story, uh, when, um, I was one of the early, uh, members who endorsed, uh, uh, Donald Trump when he was running for president and they told me he wanted to call me. And so, uh, so I did the endorsement at a Republican dinner in, in Maryville on a Friday night on Saturday morning. He called me at the house and he was in such a good mood. He talked to me for about 20 minutes about all these different things. And, and, uh, my wife was, my first wife was mad at me about something at that time. And, and she wasn't speaking to me. Uh, and, uh, so I took the phone in and I said, Mr. Trump, you, would you say hello to my wife? And my first wife, she goes, no, no. And, uh, uh, but then I handed her the phone and as I walked away, she, uh, I heard her say, I thought she was pulling my leg. And so then, she talked to him for two or three minutes, and then she comes out, and she said, he was so nice. Said uh, He told me, he said, uh, your your husband sounds just like me. And I said, uh, uh, I told him, 
I know, great for the country, but hell to live with. Oh, that's great. <laughs> President Trump, he always thought that was one of the funniest things anybody ever said to him. And, but um, they were all very nice. I remember President Clinton, Jeff Stooksbury and Bill Warwick were two Knoxville firefighters, and they were both Democrats. And, and uh, they came up to see me one time, and I was supposed to have lunch with President Clinton uh, that day. And, and I said, if you meet me back here at the subway in an hour, I might be able to introduce you to the president. And so, uh, they came back and when all the media and the press and all, they came with Clinton. And, uh, so, uh, he gets to the doorway of the Rayburn room in the Capitol. And, and I, I, so I introduced Bill Warwick to him and Bill Warwick, who had been the Knox County Democrat chairman, he was so excited, uh, uh, that, uh, and President Trump, I mean, Pre- President Clinton was a big snoozer, uh, smoozer, and he, he put his arm around me and he, and he, he told them, he said, uh, y'all take care of this guy down there now. And Bill Warwick, the Democrat chairman said, Oh, we do, Mr. President. We think Congressman Duncan is the greatest. And I always wished I had a recording of that. To get on. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'll tell you what, um, when we get, when we come back from our last break, I want to talk a little bit about Congressman Duncan's love for music. Uh, you might, there's some things about him you may not be aware of and uh, as we wrap this up. So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back. Thanks for listening this uh, this Saturday to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7. Catch us online, broganfinancial.com. I've got several classes coming up. I have a class in late February and uh, several in March and April. We've got an income planning class, a, a one-night session for two hours. It's all about retirement income planning because I think income planning is probably the most overlooked area in retirement. How do you structure investments to provide predictable but increasing income that lives longer than you do. Uh, we also have a tax planning class coming up. Uh, I think uh, taxes, income taxes, you have typically more control over your income taxes in retirement than at any other time in your life. So we'll have a one-night class for that. To find out my full schedule, both through the University of Tennessee and Pellissippi State, go to BroganFinancial.com and click on Classes. We're visiting with Congress, former Congressman Jimmy Duncan, and we've had a very interesting conversation. His book, From Bat Boy to Congressman, tells many anecdotes and stories and just a great career and and it's and it's not a hard read it's not um it's not a hard read at all um but I do want to ask you congressman duncan now we both have a love for music my undergraduate degree was actually music yes and uh, then I got my MBA yes and I wanted to be at the time I felt like I was maybe born 40 years too late I wanted to be America's great choral conductor next great choral yes. conductor but at any rate um you love music you're a singer and you sang at the Grand Ole Opry with Dolly Parton 
Well, I sang uh, uh, for about three years with the Congressional Quartet, and uh, we sang at all kinds of conventions and different things, and I really enjoyed that. And we did sing on the Grand Ole Opry one night. That was not with Dolly Parton. I actually sang with Dolly Parton after she spoke at UT to the UT graduation. But uh, did you ever think you might want to be a paid, be a professional singer? <laughs> no, no, I can tell you. I, uh, but my my mother uh, played the cello in school and then played the, the organ for her relaxation or whatever. And so uh, I, I I love uh, music, but I love what I consider real music. I don't really like a lot of the music that's out there today. You know. The, so what's real music? Well, uh, uh, real music is like Broadway music and ah. and, and maybe oldies and tr- traditional. And, and people sing songs that you can understand what they're saying. Uh, uh, and, um, but, uh, I, I did write a, you know, I said I write a column for the Focus newspaper. I wrote a column a few months ago and it said, Elvis and I sound great together. <laughs> and, and I said, when I go down the interstate, uh, you know, and sing, but, uh, uh, Dolly Parton and I, we actually sang the, uh, Cass Walker theme song, uh, uh, many of the older people like me will remember, you know, pick up your morning paper when it hits the streets. Cas Walker's prices, they can't be beat. Try some blue band coffee and you'll want some more. Do your grocery shopping at a Cas Walker store. And that, uh, that was drummed into us, so the people that grew up when I did here in Knoxville. Yeah, I think, uh, you mentioned your family. Uh, I think many of us that end up growing with such a love for music growing up that way, it was a family member. Um, you know, my mom was a professional piano accompanist and, uh, she accompanied for the local Suzuki violin program. And I fell in love with violin when I was four years old and started playing. And then that ended up being my first love in my life was my music. And, uh, so we definitely have that in common. Um, in American culture, Congressman Duncan, pennies are often considered symbolic of good luck and prosperity. Find a penny, pick it up, and all day long you'll have good luck. You are known for handing out shiny pennies. What got you started with handing out shiny pennies? Well, the the lucky pennies, that's actually one of the things I got from my dad. And he, he started that. He got the idea from a man who ran for the national commander of the American Legion. And, uh, I gave those out by the many, many thousands and uh, mainly to the children. And, uh, I had, uh, inter- I even had an article written in the Los Angeles Times one time about my lucky pennies. And, uh, and, uh, um, and then, uh, I had one woman that wrote to me one day and she said that, uh, she had been, that her family had come to our family barbecue the night before. And she said her little four year old son, They'd had real trouble getting him to go to sleep at night, but I had given him one of my lucky pennies and that she told him he could hold that lucky penny while he was going to sleep. <laughs> That's a great story. And, and uh, he's that she was grateful for that. And I had, and, and w- one time I had a person tell me that, um, uh, my lucky penny was uh, buried with her father. <laughs> Congressman, we're about out of time, unfortunately. How, how can people get a copy of your book? Well, uh, if they contact me, uh, they left me with the same email that I had when I was in office. It's congressmanduncan at gmail.com. 
And if they contact me, I'll uh, make arrangements to personally deliver a book to them and sign it if they want to. I think they would really wow, enjoy that's it. Congressman great. Duncan at gmail.com. Congressman Duncan at gmail.com and that book, From Bat Boy to Congressman. Of course, you have such a love for baseball and was a bat boy for the Knoxville Smokies. You excited they're returning to downtown Knoxville? Yes, I think that's great. Yeah, I do too. Congressman Duncan, thank you so much for taking busy time out of your schedule to be with us. It's just been a real honor to visit. Well, it's an honor for me to be here with you. I certainly admire and respect all that you do through this program. Well, thank you so much. That's Congressman Jimmy Duncan. We've discussed his service to the community because a greater community provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Much thanks to Riley for engineering the show, to Jill for producing the show. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.